Hello, and welcome to the Classical Currents Podcast. I'm your host, Charles Noble. Our intro music, as always, is by Oregon native Kenji Bunch. Find out more about him and his music at kenjibunch.net. Today we're talking with two very important members of the Portland-based musical collective 45th Parallel Universe. We're joined by the group's founder, violinist Greg Ewer, and the group's current executive director, violinist Ron Blessinger. We started our conversation by talking about the circumstances of the group's founding and why it came to be in the first place. So, Greg, let me start with you. When did uh, 45th Parallel begin? Was it 2008? One concert before the actual incorporation. Um, and that concert was a string quartet concert performed on period instruments. Um, and it's, it's kind of the, the very earliest quartets with guts. So, but it was a one-off. It was just something that I funded myself and I had really no idea where this was going. I just thought, all right, I wanna start playing a lot more concerts, exploring repertoire that I've always been interested in and doing it in, in the ways that I have always been interested in. Um, and it's only gonna happen if I, you know, if I, if I arrange it myself, there was that one-off concert that I think either happened in early 2009 or late 2008. I think I used the name 45th Parallel at that time, but it was still unincorporated. So how'd you come up with the name? What, what made 45th Parallel stick out to you? Well, I went back and forth. I mean, there were so many names that I considered, and I only remember one or two of them right now. Um, but I wanted to use a name that evoked a sense of place for Portland. Everything was that I was coming up with was cliche and cheesy, and I just wasn't happy with any of them. I planted a black hawthorn tree out in front of my house at the time, and I, I even considered calling it Black Hawthorn for a New York minute, but then I was like, eh, don't really like that. And then it occurred to me, one of the uh, iconic signs as you were approaching Portland from the South is the 45th parallel sign. And that was something that I remember vividly when I was first moving here. So it was sort of symbolic for me personally, but it's also something that, that people see on a daily basis driving up from Salem or into Portland from other places. So I just finally set, settled on 45th parallel as a nod to the region. You know, in the first 10 years or so of the group before it became the parallel universe that we'll talk about a little later on, what were some of the moments that were that stick out to you as that you're really the proudest of? Well, there's one concert that I still think about all the time, and uh, and lots of people mention it to me. And it was a show called Many Voices of the Violin. It was something that I put together with Kevin Burke. I reached out to him because I wanted to do an Irish-themed show. I did some research into some Irish chamber music. And when I finally called Kevin, we chatted for a while. I threw out my ideas. He threw out a couple ideas. And then at some point, he said, how would you feel about bringing up my friend from California? His name is Gilla Pop. And around that time, Gilla had just released a clip on YouTube where he was doing a really dazzling cadenza to a Mozart concerto. And he was supposed to play that particular concert with Yehudi Menuhin conducting, but Menuhin passed away. So Gilles Pop ended up leading the orchestra himself for the Mozart concerto. And the cadenza that he played had a little bit of everything. It had a little bit of bluegrass, Irish music. It had some Roma, gypsy music. It had everything and it went, it, it used Mozart motives from from everything. It even had South Indian Carnatic music, but all with Mozart motives from the concerto. 
And it was just such a fun thing. And it was getting a bunch of views at the time. And, and I found myself watching it every once in a while and just loving it. And so as soon as he said Jill Pop, I thought, well, this is great. You know, any concert with Kevin Burke and Jill Pop is going to be great. And then, you know, we just have to rethink it because, because at that point it becomes probably something broader than just an Irish concert. I talked to Jill a, a few months later. Well, no, at that, yeah, a few weeks later. And he loved the idea. We set the date and we did two consecutive concerts. That was the very first time I scheduled concerts on two back-to-back nights and they both sold out. It stands out in my mind as the most memorable concert that I did in the first 10 years. There were a lot of really good ones though. Uh, I loved uh, playing the Alberta Rose with Jack Straw and Kenji Bunch. Uh, Loved another concert at the Alberta Rose uh, where Alonzo Chadwick put together a five-piece band and uh, and just did some amazing tunes. Um, that was a, a sort of a weird experiment that we were trying at the time called Super Bowl Saturdays. Uh, and it was it was kind of an accident because I, I scheduled a concert on Super Bowl Sunday for the first one. And it actually was fairly well attended. And I thought, all right, well, I could probably make it even better attended if I did it one day earlier. And instead of the Super Bowl Sunday accident, just called it Super Bowl Saturdays. Anyway, we did that for a few years and, and it was fun. I also remember a concert that was a kind of a dual tribute to my late professor at Rice University, Sergio Luca, and one of his uh, favorite musicians, Joe Venuti. Um, and the first half of that concert was some of Sergio Luca's favorite music. The first half of that concert ended with Bochum's second sonata. In the middle of writing that, they found out that Joe Venuti had just passed away. At that point in the composition, the music just stopped. And then it turns into this graceful, beautiful, heartfelt tribute to Joe Venuti. The sonata just took a total 180 at the moment that Bolcom found out that Joe Venuti passed away. So we ended the first half with that piece. And then the second half, um, I was joined by uh, a swing band that kind of specialized in the music of Joe Venuti. And uh, that was kind of the second half. So it was a, a dual tribute both to Venuti and Sergio Luca. Oh, that's interesting. Lots of, lots of great moments there. You've got close to 10 years, and then all of a sudden there's kind of a seismic shift. And this is kind of where you come in, Ron. 45th Parallel becomes 45th Parallel Universe. So walk us through why and how this happened, because I, I think a lot of people know that it happened. And obviously they see the group is very different than it was when it began. How to get from, from there to here? I had been thinking for a while about running this as a collective. Once you've done something for 10 years and you've kind of put a stamp on it and you've done some of your projects that you've always dreamed of doing and you've wrestled with ambition a little bit, I think sometimes you can let go a little bit. It was a time uh, that I, I felt like might be a good time to let go a little bit. And I started talking. I think the first conversations I had were with, uh, were with Joe Berger and James Shields you know, I just said, what do you think? First of all, you think it could work? And second of all, would you guys be interested? And then I thought about the transition a little bit. You know, who amongst us, you know, our group of friends and musicians, uh, could I look to to potentially help make this happen? You know, who has who has been through growing an organization from a young stage to what it was destined for next? You know, I had been working with with Ron for many, many years, playing together, 
realizing a lot of the ideas that were in his crazy brain, uh, which proved to be some of the uh, some of the more fun and satisfying projects that that I've ever done. You know, we can go down the list. We can we we can revisit some of these if you want. I just thought if Ron is interested in in coming on board with this, that would be a real a real asset. So I called up Ron and I said, Hey, Ron, I had I had a conversation with some friends about this, and it's something that I think it might be the right time for. And and would you have the the interest and the space to help out with something like this. And luckily Ron said, it sounds really cool. Let's talk more about it. And, uh, and I'll let him, I'll let him take it from here. Well, I uh, always admired uh, Greg's work and with, with 45th parallel and, you know, it was a completely 45th parallel from my perspective, you know, it, it wasn't just Greg's baby, but it was really a, a, um, a manifestation of just Greg's love of music and his, uh, range of interests and, and and different ways that he wanted to present. The, the, the starting point was always Greg's kind of fun nature and curious nature. And also the fact that so many people always lined up to play with and for Greg because, because everybody knew that the heart was in the right place for all these projects. And, and that's, that's, I think the biggest thing that I've wanted to see continue was the, the, the kind of emotional structure of, for the parallel that was set in motion by Greg over those 10 years is something we've really tried to carry forward. I was coming off of 17 years as artistic director with Third Angle, and uh, I left that organization and the timing was right. And it was great for me artistically because it's not easy always producing something new, newness, new, new music, new, 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 new. It's a challenge for anybody, uh, composers, for example, who felt boxed in by the idea of new. Uh, famously, Georgi Ligeti renounced contemporary music and says, I'm not writing anything, any avant-garde music ever again. And then he writes Horn Trio based on the Brahms Horn Trio, which is a very modern piece, but that's his you know, reclaiming uh, tradition. Stravinsky, on and on, composers who felt boxed in. And uh, with 45th Parallel, our programming um, ethos is much more expansive. The reason why we, we kind of added universe to 45th Parallel is a bit cheeky to 45th Parallel Universe, but the parallel universe in, in my mind, and I think in the group's mind, has to do with understanding how tradition, traditional music informs our, our understanding and our interpretation of contemporary music and vice versa. We, we have to understand and be fluent in both sides of the universe here musically. And that, that makes it really, really exciting. That all came together, I think, beautifully in a big project that we did just before the pandemic hit, which Laboriad. We, we've set out with 45th Parallel Universe to not have an artistic director, to be collectively curated, like Greg described, you know, this, this idea of collective curation, which, you know, has some challenges too, because in some cases, you want a strong voice that says, we're going to do it this way, and you guys are going to help me realize my vision. You want to also avoid projects where you're just satisfying everybody, and it's kind of the least common denominator, and then you end up with, you know, the joke about what do you call a horse designed by a committee, you know, it's, it's a camel. <laughs> you want to have very wonderful, clear, artistically resonant projects. And I, th I think Le Boreade was the one, was, was a really good, has been a really good example for what 40th Parallel Universe has 
is, is setting out to accomplish. That was a project that James and, and Greg really took the lead on programmatically. We had a conversation, just spitballing, what do we want to do? Started focusing on the French program. Greg and James took the ball and ran with it. And Greg and his experience with uh, uh, Baroque music, bringing the, the understanding of the Romo Laboria to the table. And then James and Greg fleshing out the entire program of, of all French composers, all the way up through Boulez and everything in between with Ravel and Debussy. And then I brought to the table my, my uh, friendships and associations with artists, visual artists, and others who could provide that really cool virtual reality kind of setting and this idea that I've always loved of how context really informs how we hear music. Laboriad brought all of that together, it brought together our collective experience as musicians, as artists, and um, it was a great, a phenomenal evening. That was exciting and promising and cool. And then we had, I think, one more concert <laughs> and then the pandemic hit. So we put our grand vis visions and our grand uh, schemes on hold while we deal with that, uh, we've dealt with that circumstance. So tell me what, for those people that don't know, what what is the collective? What is it comprised of? There are a number of constituent ensembles. We have, um, as you mentioned, we have constituent ensembles. We have two string quartets, the Musée Remix, uh, Pixis String Quartet, Percussion Group, the Gemini Project, uh, Fog, Friends of Greg. And that, that, that is a name, an acronym that I foisted on Greg, but I think it really, you know, means what it says. You know, we're all friends of Greg and, and that's, that's where Greg does what he wants to do and, and continues doing kind of projects that have traditionally been kind of cornerstones of Fourth of Pearl, of course. And we've got Arcturus. Wind Quintet. Uh, and then we all come together a couple of times a year as a chamber orchestra. We also, uh, from time to time, kind of mix and match, we throw together a hybrid concert that'll have members from each group kind of come together and do pieces that don't fit so neatly into those constituent groups. It's a core group of players that represent really the finest musicians uh, around. I can tell you, you know, I've been I've been in Portland a lot longer than you guys. <laughs> I can remember a time, I mean, a couple of years ago, we did the Bourgeois Gentilhomme of uh, Richard Strauss. And, you know, 30 years ago, there's no way, no way we could have done that, especially without a conductor. Sky's the limit for what we can do. Uh, you know, our imagination will lead the way, and then we have uh, the resources to pull off anything. It's pretty amazing kind of the musician arms race as I kind of think of it, because, you know, I remember back in my first years in the Oregon Symphony, there were, I mean, never mind in concerts, but rehearsals, it was not always a given that you would get through a very difficult piece in one uninterrupted swath. It was, you know, falling apart was not unheard of. And then I remember not too long ago, I think we started the season with Ein Heldenleben and we read that thing down. And it was just like, I remember sitting there and looking over at Joelle, my stand partner and going, we made it through that whole piece. We played the whole piece at our first reading and now it'll just get better, you know? And it, it's pretty amazing. The, I think the symphony as a engine of artistry is kind of maybe a little underrated, sometimes derided from some quarters, 
but there's no mistaking the fact that you know all these amazing musicians that have come in over the years as the level has come up it's really made the musical landscape a lot more uh fertile and uh and exciting i mean i i remember when greg moved to town and adam i think you guys moved to town within a year of each other i think adam lamont and two amazing fiddle players and you had a quartet going at the same time i had ethos quartet going and uh you know just going man these guys are amazing and uh and feeling like wow okay this portland thing might you might uh, you know might be a place to stay you know you know it was a it was an interesting uh thing that that sergio luca said to me once when i told him i had just gotten the job in the oregon symphony um he kind of in the same breath that he congratulated me um you know he knew how seductive the city could be and what a hold on on people it it had because it had that for him too uh and he said he said as soon as you hit that seat start practicing for auditions because if enough time passes a few years you're going to stay here because you're going to love it and uh he said if you have ambitions to uh you know to to be in a bigger orchestra then then do it now because the city's going to grab a hold of you and hold you <laughs> keep you here and uh of course he was right but the other part of that story is that i moved here because i loved it to begin with um you know i i first visited oregon in 99 i think it was and i promised myself at some point in my life i'm going to live in portland and then the next year i moved up here and uh my good friend from junior high and high school adam lamont was already here and we started playing chamber music right away i worked at uh paul schubeck's violin shop on southeast milwaukee and powell for for that first year and uh, and i you know my musical life was 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 fairly uh contained within just a few friends that i knew uh having just moved here uh, so I, I really had no idea what was in store, but Portland year after year after year has con just continued to surprise me artistically and surpass my expectations, which were clearly not high enough to begin with. I just, I just didn't know, you know, you don't know until you get here. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, it's, it's an incredible place to have been for the last 20 years and watch flourish into you know the envy of of cities that are quite a lot bigger than portland what about you ron when did you when did you come to town did you come around 1990 yep that's right so you got five years on me yeah i was okay. on your i was on your audition committee remember oh so it's all your fault <laughs> <laughs> what were you thinking ron <laughs> so tell tell me about what was it like in portland back in the in the early 90s well first of all i grew up in eastern oregon okay i grew up in hermiston and uh, uh i we came to portland all the time i mean i actually have a basketball here signed by the blazers the entire trailblazer team the year before they won the championship so i remember going to lloyd's center when it was open air and ice skating and my folks you know we were oregonians so we come to portland all the time Although growing up as a musician, um, I didn't have a lot of contact with Portland, you know, teachers or 
uh, I went to shoebox violin shop to get strings, but I had more contact, frankly, in Washington. Washington, my parents used to drive me six hours round trip for violin lessons every Saturday to Pullman, Washington. I was in graduate school in Boston and there was a notice for an audition like a couple in a couple of weeks. And I was already planning to come out here to visit my folks. And I said, what the hell, take the audition and had a really good day and uh, uh, was offered a job. And that was 30 years ago. Yeah, lots changed <laughs> since then. <laughs> Um, you know, the orchestra, look, the orchestra was a, uh, was a part-time orchestra. There have been big changes in the evolutionary history of the orchestra. Hiring Jimmy DePriest was a big, big change. It was the first kind of time I think the orchestra really, you know, committed to being a, a, a world-class organization. I mean, Jimmy had world-class kind of vibe to him. He had celebrity, for sure. And that was what, and, and of course, a wonderful musician. So he was the face of the organization for many, many years. He's the one who hired me and many, many others in the orchestra. And Carlos. Me too. Yeah, exactly. So Carlos, and, and you too, hired all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, Carlos came in with a different uh, mandate, and that was to really raise the level of the playing of the orchestra, and he did. So, Charles, you're exactly right. I mean, I would, I've been struck during the Carlos years by how often we'll sit down and play something that's just exceedingly difficult, a Mahler symphony, and just read through the entire movement, and I'm just like, wow. I mean, I can remember when that just would not have been possible. In fact, one of the first concerts I played in Oregon, we were playing Mahler 9 and the orchestra got lost. Had to stop during the concert. So yeah, we've come a long way, baby. <laughs> you know, you know what's interesting about those Jimmy years is is the uh, I mean, aside from how magnificent a human being James the Priest was, was kind of the the amazing sort of Jekyll and Hyde way that the orchestra was, because you just never knew which orchestra was going to show up. I mean, there were concerts that I still to this day remember as being just transcendent. Any Rachmaninoff, for example, with Jimmy, it was always amazing. And then there were other concerts I remember very vividly, uh, a Schubert 9 in Tacoma <laughs> that was literally probably one of the worst concerts I think I ever was a part of. And I was just really embarrassed, you know, um, and my parents were there and friends from, from school that I went to school with in Tacoma. You don't have those mood swings of the orchestra anymore. People work, they play at a really high level all the time. And there's this, this real motivation to make music at the highest level, regardless of what's happening. Yeah. Well, I, I've always thought of it the orchestra kind of like a, a basketball team. My, my dad was a basketball coach, so I, I think in these terms a lot. But, you know, Jimmy was like a real offensive-minded uh, players coach. You know, he could get the offense to play really, really great. Maybe the defense wasn't so great. It's kind of like the Blazers right now, man. We hope they get their shit together on their defense because their offense is cooking. Against Greg's Houston Rockets the other night, they had 50 points in the first quarter so so, but, but that's, that was the Oregon Symphony. And then, you know, Carlos comes in, it's a different coach. He has different strengths. And just like Jimmy, certain pieces suited Jimmy's, you know, um, style really well. 
certain pieces suit Carlos's style really well. I, you know, for me, for example, Carlos, Shostakovich symphony, what I've always, always admired about Carlos, and we got to know this and used to this with Carlos over the years, was that it has this real fidelity to the literal directions in the score. If Shostakovich said, there's a, a poco accelerando here, and then there's an tempo 40 bars later, it didn't, if, if there was any tradition that had, had evolved over the years, he stripped it completely away like a furniture repairman who stripped off varnish of all these ideas and all these other traditions and was dead set on doing it exactly like Shostakovich indicated. I remember clearly in Shostakovich symphony and his, that kind of intensity to detail and fidelity to what the composer really wrote and didn't matter what, you know, the Boston symphony did in their famous recording in the seventies. It didn't matter any of that. I think we all grew to kind of admire that with Carlos and suited him well in some pieces and in other pieces where Jimmy might feel the moment and do something really interpretive in the moment. Carlos wasn't really about the moment as much as he was about um, his sense of integrity in terms of the intent of the composer. And the overall architecture. And the overall architecture, absolutely. So, I mean, completely different artists and both very, very effective. So we've had the benefit, I mean, the three of us here and those of us that were around uh, since the Jimmy days of really seeing two completely different approaches and um, now we're set up for the third. And now potentially someone that I feel like has the potential to uh, draw the middle course between that sort of style of Jimmy and of Carlos with David Donsmeyer. I'm very excited about, about what's coming up with him. Me too. As long as he lets Greg and I play viola. Oh boy. Then... <laughs> <laughs> Greg, you want to tell that story? Well, we are doing the New World Symphony this year, so. Oh. Do I even remember the whole story? I, I think there was a, a week. Uh, we were we were going to Newburgh for our our annual concert there. Beautiful hall, by the way. It's yeah. fantastic. I always love the way the orchestra sounds in that uh, in that hall. But for that particular week, there were no viola subs available anywhere. And we had a couple of holes in our section. The personnel manager had no trouble finding violinists. She came to the two of us, Ron and I, because I guess she knew that we played viola and said, would you consider moving over to the viola section for a concert and we can just hire violin subs, you know, who we know are available. Yeah, I mean, Ron and I took it as a, a challenge and we knew we would have a lot of fun with it. We actually got together with Joel and had a little three-person sectional I think he wanted to to make sure that we weren't just going to goof off in the back the entire time, but we had a we had a blast with him, <laughs> just playing through some of the stuff together, and and uh, and then we we sat in the back and uh, and and held it together quite well. There's a famous yeah. passage in the uh, I believe it's the end of the third movement of the Dvorak New World Symphony. Is that the is that the famous? We nailed it, man. We yeah, where the uh, nailed that shit man there you go. what what is the what is the yes. pattern it starts with uh the end of the scare and i remember that was that was something that i practiced quite diligently because uh, i really wanted to nail that and every single rehearsal i was absolutely right on top of it and then we get to Newburgh, and you know right in the middle of it i i just started to second guess myself i don't know maybe somebody twitched 
in front of me or something. And I just thought, Oh boy, here, here it comes. <laughs> so my, the way that I got through that moment was I stared Carlos dead in the eye and my bow never stopped moving, but it was this high above the stern. <laughs> For those of you who cannot see Greg, he measured about an inch with his <laughs> finger and thumb. Make it till you make That's it, right. buddy. That's right, baby. <laughs> no, I don't. We, we've never been invited back We're to the Viola section, but uh... yes. Well, I mean, I I tried to stare him down too, but I remember he stared back, <laughs> and it was like it was a slight shake in his head, like, oh, jeez. Was it Nietzsche that talked about staring into the abyss, and the abyss stares back yes. at you? Yes, yes. We were dos abysmos. <laughs> 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 oh, that was a that was a particularly fun moment in the Oregon Symphony. Yeah. Well, we gained an appreciation for for this uh, this instrument you play, Charles. And I, I think on that concert too, or maybe it was another concert I played viola. I was, it was um, Schoenberg Five Pieces. Is that? Yeah, uh, we, we did that. That uh, Joao and Peter played the Symphonia Concerta on that. That's concert. right. I remember, and the conductor looked like another version of Peter Fajola. So, because <laughs> they they had both cut their hair really and short. Man yeah. alert. Well, I yeah, I, I just remember on the Schoenberg, for me playing the viola is ninety nine percent just playing by ear and hope hope hoping that I guess right. And in the Schoenberg, it was it was atonal. It was twelve tone music. It was really hard. I mean, I I was definitely a detriment. I, I, I owed everybody um, a bottle of scotch whiskey after that one. You know, it's one of those things that I don't think people give a lot of thought to. I mean, if you you were in the first violin section back when we had a first and second violin section, right, Ron? Yeah. Yeah. So yes. you you have a lot of melodic material to play with. The cellists have a lot of melody, bass players, whatever. but. You know, second violin and, and viola, you have so much material that has, you've got nothing to go on. And it depends on the composer, like you're playing a Walton, any of the English symphonists, and you're just playing little snippets and you're jumping all over the place and you never get to play the melody except for like three notes. There's a lot to be said for the skills that you develop when you basically never get to play a melody for months at a time and you're just jumping around trying to assist, you know. It's like being a utility player. That, that really uh, uh, is especially true in string quartets. You know, that's why the, the inner voices, it's, it's a particular challenge where you are, you are accompanying and then you're soloist. And then you're coming, I mean, you have switched that on and off really, really rapidly. But you know, like a lot of, it's, that's a challenge and that's fun. It makes it a lot of fun. Well, you know, in, in school, seriously, they, they, they in, when I was in the conservatory, violinists had to take viola class. Yeah, I know at Curtis, if you're a violin major, if you are a violinist there, you have to take two years of viola to, to graduate. Yeah, but, but do the violists have to take violin class? No, but most of the violists at Curtis probably played violin up until they were almost in college. Understood. And I, yeah, I understand. I think each should be able to play some of the other. Right. And, and there's some great examples out there. You know, uh, James Ennis, who's a fabulous violinist and violist. And of course, there's Pincus Zuckerman, who's like God's gift to viola play. I mean, that guy is extraordinary. So what's what's on tap for 
45th parallel, anything you can divulge any little hints, little hints. Cause I don't know when the, when the formal launches, are we swearing people to secrecy like the orchestra does or. No, it's, it's okay. We, we can chat about next season, but before we do, we should mention that since the pandemic, we have produced weekly concerts every Friday. By the time we get to the end of June, we will produce 57 performances over the past year, which is incredible. I mean, we produced nine performances the year before. So when the pandemic hit, you know, our friend Danny Rosenberg created this application that allowed us to start playing chamber music safely from our homes. And that has just grown into this weekly series that we continue to do. And, you know, we've had a, a tremendous year in terms of donations and just, I mean, the list of pieces that we presented is, is a mile long. It's an extraordinary accomplishment. I, I couldn't be prouder of the organization and players stepping up to just play the hell out of everything. And also, you know, with that real estate, that increased real estate, we were able to have some fun with stuff like having our colleague Zach Galatis play some flute and piccolo stuff and then sing Broadway show tunes. So we've had a lot of fun with it. And that has set the stage for what's to come next year as we get back to more live concerts. I know we're all looking forward to that very much. Audience and players alike. Yes, we are. So what, what is, there's not really a theme involved with our seasons because everybody's coming up with all the constituent ensembles are basically devising their their parts of the season and then we all come together as players and we hash out what we're going to do for our two chamber orchestra concerts do you think there is a theme i know one thing that happened during the pandemic time because shortly after lockdown happened there were the very tragic events in minneapolis and elsewhere that sort of brought the Black Lives Matter movement into very sharp focus very quickly. And a lot of groups had already been looking in that direction in terms of being socially activistic and trying to raise awareness. I know that in terms of having all that extra real estate, we were able to do music by composers that were under underrepresented or who had been oppressed or suppressed in various ways. Overlooked. Yeah, overlooked, which was, was a wonderful thing. And that seems like something that's going to continue. Um, I don't know where I'm going with that other than to say that that's something that we did <laughs> and to say that there's not really a theme, but as, as we as members of the group get interested in things that are happening in society, that influences what we decide to play. Right. Well, and also this concert series was an example of how we were able to pivot quickly. You know, our, we were nimble and that nimbleness also is allows us to, for example, we're going to do a concert of, of Asian music featuring colleagues in our organization, Asian uh, players, Shin Kwan of South Korea playing a wonderful piece, solo violin piece on that concert. And uh, we have a piece, by Kenji Bunch, that we recorded that we're going to do on that and Yoko Greeny, you know, on and on. So this year we've been able to re respond to moments and come up with programs that, you know, normally you plan a year in advance. And you don't know what the world's going to be like a year from now, but this past year we've been able to pivot quicker programmatically. No, I think another lasting effect that the pandemic is going to have is I think, I think it will have a lasting effect on programming. You know, the pandemic sort of offered the Black Lives Matter movement to, to really, to really receive the scrutiny that, that it has deserved to receive 
for a long time. But with everybody sitting in their living rooms as a captive audience to the events of the last year, I mean, there, nothing was new about this. What was new about it is the attention that everybody was able to pay to some things that really, really needed a light shined upon them. And, uh, you know, it's, it's our own collective uh, shame that, that it has taken uh, being quarantined at home to kind of, uh, you know, bring enough people into the realization that uh, as a country, we have some, some real things to work on. And I think programming, I think this is, I think the pandemic will prove to be a watershed moment. I mean, there, I'm sure, you know, it, it will take time to play out as anything does. But I think, uh, I think we are, I mean, it's a prediction and I could easily be wrong here and I hope that I'm not, but you know, I predict that that 10 years from now, we will look back at this this last year and see that uh, changes in priorities and programming that reflect the demographics of our society uh, in a more appropriate way. I, I think that I think that we'll see uh, that this was, you know, one of the silver linings of the pandemic. And I hope I'm, I hope I'm not wrong about that because I know there are plenty of skeptical people uh, and, and they're right to be skeptical because we don't collectively have a track record of, uh, of, of changing things in a timely manner. But I think the, the pandemic kind of, I don't want to say forced us, but it allowed us to collectively look at, at what was going on in classical music program and, and said, you know, is this, is this the best we can do? And is this, the best thing for our futures and is this really fair to the art form that that has you know up until i don't know the last few decades been a living breathing art form more so than it has been recently um maybe i'm just being vague about this but anyway i the the point being i think that uh we will look back at this last year as a watershed moment and i think if you do look at the the programming that 45th Parallel was able to do during the last year, it almost could serve as a historical document. What were you doing when the pandemic hit? What were you doing throughout the summer? And I, I feel like our programming has has left a really interesting mark. Actually, it's funny that I'm, I'm wearing this shirt, that uh, this 45th Parallel shirt that we kind of designed halfway through the pandemic. In the tradition of, of a rock and roll tour shirt, it's got all the tour stops. Well, ours has all of the programs that we put, to put together. And those programs really reflect a story, the story of cultural change during the pandemic. You know, I hope that I'm not being melodramatic about it, or, or, or I hope that it really is a story that, that continues to unfold in a positive way. But I think we've done a, a really interesting job of documenting it. Well, also, you know, I, I've, uh, I felt like the pandemic posed the biggest challenge for the bigger organizations had a big, big problem uh, during the pandemic because they, they, you know, there's so much tradition, so much concern about their audience and say, I mean, all these legitimate concerns. I'm not, I don't mean to minimize the concern. We belong to a big organization, the institution of the Oregon Symphony. So we understand. And, you know, in this city, it's it's, you know, the uh, theater groups, the Shakespeare Company, everybody was dealing with it. But I thought the pandemic was an opportunity to get reacquainted with the upside for grassroots. I think that playing chamber music in your living room with your kids, playing it on a street corner, 
I, I think that there's something to be said for realigning understanding or getting reacquainted with it as a grassroots endeavor. And I think that we've, um, I think that's been important, important for us. Well, the idea of institutionality, I would just sort of riff with that. You know, the flip side of that is that the Oregon Symphony is the reason why, you know, the, the city, the city's musical life, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say what I was gonna say. It's not the reason why the city's musical life is, is rich. That's actually false. Uh, the city has a very amazing uh, history of jazz musicians. Uh, there's, there's a hell of a lot that's going on here, but in terms of the nonprofit sector, uh, the, the Oregon Symphony is the reason why a lot of smaller nonprofit leaders live in Portland, from Fierno Music to 45th Parallel, Third Angle for so many years. That's, that's the positivity that an institution can lend because you have a collection of musicians that can staff your community colleges and your Reed colleges and Lewis and Clark's and teach your, you know, your upcoming generation of, of musicians. Well, one other big way too has been the hard shove down the path of technology. The arts groups, for sure, we're going to look back and say that, you know, the consciousness of um, or, or the um, mandate that arts groups have to have of telling the the fuller story of classical music. I mean, to me, that's what this is about. It's like, don't just tell a narrow story. Tell tell a broader story, and and that includes lots of different and, and varied and diverse voices. Uh, on that count, by the way, we have um, a partnership with Gabriela Elena Frank's Creative Academy of Music uh, with 45th Parallel. We're featuring two new compositions, actually three premieres next year. Uh, one with Arcturus Quintet um, by Brandon Scott Rumsey, um, chamber orchestra piece by Marco Ramos and uh, by Nina Shekar. So that um, Association with Gabby is is wonderful, and uh, you know. But and I, I should say this too, you know, Greg. It's a tradition of Forty Fifth Parallel to tell the full story, and the pandemic has given us an opportunity to expand on that for sure. But in terms of broadcasting, I mean, when we started this, and I remember talking to people in the orchestra, and they're like, "Well, the broadcasting—that's nothing. It's a money loser. It ain't gonna happen." Well, now, you know, once the pandemic drug on, and people were like damn, if we don't do something online, then we will have no creative presence whatsoever. Kind of brought, pulled the collective head out of the classical music's butt about being snobs about technology and about broadcasting, about YouTube channels and all this. A whole generation of people have grown up getting their music this way. When I listen to the Bee Gees, I don't feel like I have sacrificed or I have compromised my experience in understanding the greatness of the Bee Gees because I heard them on YouTube in the way that a classical purist might say, no, 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 Beethoven needs to be in the concert hall. It needs to be on the stage. It needs to be live. Granted, if I could see the Bee Gees live, that would be great, but I can't. So I, I'm glad to see the orchestra seeing the light on online stuff. You know, we're in an interesting position of having an online audience now as we consider bringing in the live audience. It's, it's really the polar opposite of what had been the dynamic a year ago, where everybody's like, live audience, how do we get online? Pandemic shoved us hard down the path towards a different uh, um, paradigm. 
It's interesting when you when you were talking about YouTube and how it's kind of a democratizer of classical music. In one of my earlier episodes, I talked with David Hatner, who's music director of PYP, Portland Youth Philharmonic, and they've been arguably one of the leaders in continuing their mission, just completely switching online. And he was talking about, and I'm roughly paraphrasing, but saying that kids these days have a way to curate their own experience because they have so much available to them. So he said, why not have an orchestra or chamber groups that come and they bring music that kids are already listening to. And instead of saying, you must listen to Beethoven and like it, they say, here's a symphony orchestra playing music of an artist that your typical 10 year old or teen loves. They go, oh, wow, that's really cool. Orchestra is cool. Maybe I'll find out what else the orchestra plays. And they find their way to Beethoven. And it's not going we're taking this and ramming it down your throat, but we're inviting you into the experience and you can determine where you want to go with that. It just seems like such a no-brainer, like such a natural thing to do, but it took this kind of circumstance where everything was just exploded. And as people were trying to figure out what to do, they just started coming to the obvious conclusions that were obfuscated by tradition and just the way things have been done. And fear, you know, fear of alienating traditionalists. Pandemic obliterates the fear because there a bigger fear supplants it, a bigger fear of irrelevance and 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 nothingness. So then this is the toolkit we have to work with. We have YouTube, we have the internet, we have this and that and the other. What are we gonna do to be creative with this situation? One of the first things, um, when the pandemic hit, I, got, I had a conversation with one of our funders and I said, man, you must be really devastated that this is affecting the groups that you've supported so generously over the years. And she said, no, the, the arts are going to be fine. The arts always survive. And what she wanted to see was what the artists were going to do with this moment. And I was like, there you go. That's it. What are we going to do with it? And 54 shows later, we've had a really interesting year. I'm glad to see classical music begin to understand technology better. By the way, one of the things we learned was when we started broadcasting, we were like, hey, look at us. We have this platform that lets us play with musicians all over the world in live. You know, that makes us unique. But the fact is that there's so much content out there, so much, that it was a challenge differentiating ourselves from everybody else and understanding how to market you know, an organization in a completely different way. So it's, it's had its um, challenges for sure. Well, there's an upside, upside to, to institutionality. Don't, don't get me wrong. There, there, there's, there's pros and cons to it. Yeah, yeah well, the, the cons, you know, we were talking about the cons being the, the, sometimes the slowness that a large organization can't overcome in a, in a way that, a, that an organization like 45th Parallel, but just in giving a shout out to uh, the organization that, you know, that, that serves in a way as our, as our mothership, you know, for most of us here in, in 45th Parallel, you know, that, that, that's the flip side of it, you know, so I think, I think a healthy ecosystem has, has the institutions and the more nimble, smaller groups, and the healthier your larger institutions are, um, I think a healthier ecosystem you can have uh, because of that. I, I thought of the symphony as the federal government and uh, the other groups like we're the states, we're the laboratories. We need both. And we are the beneficiaries of community of fans who support a strong orchestra. I was trying to make the point that the pandemic 
just affected the bigger institutions on a whole different scale, completely different scale. But on the flip side, presented an opportunity to the smaller groups to experiment and you know show the wave out of this and show little signs of life that are starting to creep up. And then once it's safe to go back outside, then uh, and the institutions um, you know come along too. And uh, you know the way things are going, the the plan to bring the symphony back full force next fall is looking very, very good. We're all very, very happy about that. And um, it's going to be a very, very busy year for all of us. Thanks so much to Greg Ewer and Ron Blessinger for joining us this week. To find out more about 45th Parallel Universe or to learn more about some of the things referenced in today's episode, just head over to www.classicalcurrents.com forward slash show notes for links, photos, and videos. And please, if you like the show, take the time to leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It will help the show be heard by more people, and I'll appreciate it a lot. Thanks in advance for all your help. See you next time. <laughs>